head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hello and welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed. I'm Joanna Robinson and tonight in the role of Nora Princiati, we've got Chris Ryan. Hi, Chris. I guess this is like Austin Abrams on that show. I can just play any part. Do it all. You're The number of wigs you currently have stacked behind you ready to go for whatever I need you to do is... is you have no idea. True professional. True professional. Um, Nora, the lovely Nora could not join us for this for our breakdown of the Euphoria, Euphoria Season 2 finale. Uh, HBO did not give us screeners in advance. This is their want with finale sometimes, and Nora is traveling today. So Nora wishes she could be here. Chris is here instead. We're so excited to have Chris here to talk about episode eight. All my life, my heart has yearned for a thing I cannot name, which is a, a, a divisive euphoria finale, which is what we got. So, so lucky us. Uh, before we get into this episode, there are some programming reminders that I want to say. The Prestige TV podcast feed is, is just clogged yeah. with beautiful uh, episodes for you guys. We've got some coverage on Severance. Super pumped. Uh, Mal and I will be talking about The Marvelous is Maisel this week. We'll be talking about The Dropout this week. We've got a lot going on. There's a lot of good TV. I couldn't even get 1883 on the docket. I'm going to have to start a Sheridan verse yeah, alternate feed. Yeah. Oh my God. Please start a Sheridan verse only feed. That would be, that's like, that's the culmination of your life's work. I think, I think so. <laughs> it's where I finally arrive at my demo. Um, all right. So we want to talk about uh, this episode. There's so much to, to say. I've seen a wide range of reactions, but I want to start as we usually do with the episode title names because Sam Levinson, bless, likes to pack in a lot of uh, meaning into his episode titles. So the, the episode title this week, All My Life, My Heart Has Yearned for a Thing I Cannot Name, is an André Breton quote from a book he wrote called Mad Love, which um, I, I've been trying in the past to sort of like read at least some of these books or poems that Sam Levinson is referencing here, but I could not get my hands on a good translation of Mad Love. So I so I instead would like to present to you, Chris, if you don't mind. The bad translation? <laughs> Some Amazon reviews of, of Mad Joy, Love. I've been doing French Duolingo lessons, so if you want me to take a run at it, <gasps> you know, we could try. Zutelar. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I I just want to read these because Andre Breton is like a is a master of surrealism. That's his thing. And so these 
Amazon reviews of the Modern Library Translation of Modern Love are so all over the map that it just reminded me of the euphoria reactions. So here's one. Impossible to read. Two stars. I tried three times to begin this book. I'm interested in Breton. I want to read his book. His works. This book is unreadable. And then Jessica, someone named Jessica, said five stars, a convulsive beauty masterpiece. Uh, truly a work of art written in a surrealist manner. It celebrates love and lovers. It finds beauty in such ordinary things as iron masks, spoons, and trees. You know, so I think this is a perfect analog for the uh for the wide range of euphoria responses. But I think to be ever so slightly more serious about it, to try to try to take Sam Levinson seriously here. I think that this surrealist approach is sort of the best solution if you find yourself watching Euphoria and being stressed about it. Um, I advocate listening to Chris Ryan on the, on the watch tell you, don't worry about internal logic of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Just enjoy the visuals and the vibes. Like you, you said that like a couple weeks ago and I was just sort of like, oh yeah. Yeah. And it helped me learn to like, you know, stop worrying and love, love the bomb. That is uh, euphoria. How are you feeling? Uh, Chris? You know, I, so it's so weird. Cause like, I feel like what I'm watching, say like the finale, the season finale of like mayor of Kingstown, mm-hmm. everything needs to make sense. Yeah. I'm like this prison riot needs to like fit like a certain logical step-by-step progression. But when I am watching something about a high school, which is something I did experience, I'm just like, let it ride, kids. Like, let's see what happens. You guys want to have something in a play where the conversation didn't happen until after the play took place or was written? Fine. I don't care. Like, do you want to have, you know, like a play breakdown and have like a family meeting taking place during the play? Fine. I don't care. Like the the chronology of this show is off. Mm-hmm. Actors get older yet play their younger selves. It's all good. I just really, really let this show wash over me. I will say that I found, I have some critiques about like just the lack of kinetic energy I felt in maybe the last two episodes, which was essentially one very long episode Mm -hmm. uh, of TV, but we can get into that. But yeah, I I just, I leave, I leave logic at the door when I check in on Euphoria. And I think that in, in the past, when so much of the show is, taking place inside of Rue's drug-induced experience, that surrealism has been easier for people to swallow because they're like, is this happening? Is this not happening? Well, Rue is high, so how can we know? But in this episode, last two episodes, when people are sensibly sober, with the exception of Elliot and his long song, which we can talk about, um, the... That that's that dream logic remains, you know what I mean? So you can have a high school production, as you say, like devolve into Jerry Springer or um, the production value on this high school uh, production is <laughs> would make Noah Baumbach weep. Yeah. <laughs> it does not take place in a reality. So if it doesn't take place in a reality, then I'm not that worried about like plot threads dangling. What I what I needed to feel is emotionally satisfying because I'm emotionally invested in these characters. And I would say some mixed results. But like when Euphoria nails the visuals and nails the emotions, then I am absolutely here for it. And I think that there are, you know, we'll, we'll maybe at the end we'll sort of do a, a larger season wide. How do we feel? But there are absolute banger episodes in this season. Oh my gosh! You know, yeah. so yeah. for all its mess, and I love a Sunday night HBO mess. I watched all of True Blood like wall to wall. It's a different <laughs> kind of mess, but I, I embrace the mess. Um, 
you know, there there is some some real art, artistic uh, value in all of this. Yeah, you know, I think that the key for me in last night's episode on on, on the finale mm-hmm. was during Rue's eulogy for her father, which I think is the third or fourth time mm-hmm. that we've seen this I eulogy. And it this just point. keeps getting yeah. longer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No offense. She talks a little bit about um, basically perceiving herself as a character in a movie. Mm. And I thought that that was a really handy way to look at Euphoria, that all of these characters see themselves in a movie and that Euphoria's camera eye sees them in movies. Mm. And that that is sort of like, it's almost movie logic when you're watching Cassie regard herself in a mirror or, you know, thinking about her relationship with Nate and like, you know, that's an erotic thriller. And then Rue is in uh, is in Good Time. And, you know, <laughs> these people are in different films in the same TV show. Yeah. I, that that was very helpful for me. I love that. We're, we're going to get into, uh, you know, something I said at the beginning of the season to Nora is that when we meet the character of Lori, um, that to me felt like, I'm not, I'm not going to have a movie comp here, but it felt to me very much like a, a different show. It felt like an FX era, like, a crime show where here's the new big bad of the season. You know what I mean? Like we, we called up Neil McDonough and he's going to come and be a problem for a season. That's not really how Laurie shook out, but that idea of sort of a crime show uh, is where we all ended up uh, in a big way at this, at this episode. Before we get exactly into that, I do want to hit some of these like external questions uh, uh, or, or surrounding the show. First of all, Let's talk about the cultural impact of the show. Nora and I talked about this a little bit last week, how, how massive the ratings are this season, uh, that it's doubled its ratings uh, since the first season, how rare, you and I talk about this all the time, how rare something that feels like it's in the monoculture is. And uh, a, another good example of that is that last night HBO Max crashed right when sure <laughs> the Euphorian finale started, which is something I don't think has happened since thrones like i don't think uh, i don't think so that or maybe maybe succession had some tough login moments maybe. but i doubt it yeah but the, these these ratings are i think um by several millions larger than the succession like it's a bigger show than succession oh, yeah. which is just yeah. like you know depending what corners of the internet you frequent you might be surprised by that but it's true it's just like euphoria is massive so i don't know like how does it feel for this to be a show that has captured the monoculture in that way for you. So last night when I was logging on to watch it, I couldn't. It was like just giving <laughs> me the three dots going across for like a really long time. Yeah. So I I thought that does Tom Holland like walk on stage and do a song from <laughs> Oklahoma in our life or something? Like what is possibly like sinking I HBO wish. Max today? Um, I do think that this show is huge and is the maybe... Uh, what's the right word? Is it a, a, a apotheosis? Ap- uh, apotheosis, like of, yeah. Apotheosis yeah. of uh, sometimes when there's a little, that extra break in between seasons and so many people can discover your show and catch up and become obsessed with it, that then that slingshots into the new season, which I think we saw a lot with Breaking Bad mm-hmm. is probably the last time yeah. that I remember. I mean, Saul to some extent, but Breaking Bad certainly had that huge boost from being on Netflix. And I think Euphoria is just something people have obviously found over the last two years. I don't think that the Christmas specials hurt at all. I also think the fact that Zendaya is one of the most famous people in the world certainly (laughs) aids this all. And I do actually think that this is a, for as um, controversial or racy as the show can be, there's something in it for everybody. Mm -hmm. Like you can kind of see 
any configuration of people or person sitting down and being like, there's something in euphoria that I'm interested in. It's not breaking the mold as much as some people think it is because like for, for whatever envelope yeah. it pushes and it does, I'm, I mean, honestly, this reminds me of cycles around 90210 or the OC yeah. or Gossip Girl. Yeah. Like, you know, these, these young talented actors who are on the show are forever going to be identified with these roles with like, you know, a, a, a few certain exceptions. Um, the cultural, the, the like chokehold it has on the cultural, especially like the music aspect of it, which I think is super interesting. Something I discovered over the weekend, like I knew, I knew that it had a, you know, a, that when the music supervisor on Euphoria puts a track on there, that that, that track then becomes popular and interesting. But I was looking at my guy, Jonathan Richmond. Um, I was dancing the lesbian bars, a song I really love that was in an episode earlier this season. It's also in episode four of Mrs. Maisel. And I was, I, I bopped over to Jonathan Richmond's Spotify. I was dancing the lesbian bar, which was not as of a couple months ago, the top track. Like when you go into Spotify and then you see like the top five tracks or whatever, yeah. that was not the most known Jonathan Richmond song. Now it has four times the place. It has 12 million plays. Compared to oh his God. next most popular song, which has three million. That's the power of Euphoria. Or if you have something like Donovan Fike's very long song, Elliot's long yeah. song that he sings in this episode, that Zendaya co-wrote with with Labyrinth, the guy who does the music for the show, like that's gonna be highly, highly streamed. Like that's that's a thing. So like I don't know. It reminds me of when a band would show up on the OC or when a band would show up at the Peach Pit after dark. Like it's just cycles. Shout of out the to same. Phantom Planet. Yeah. You know? we're, we're <laughs> exactly. Time is a flat circle. We're just doing it again. As you were saying that, I was looking over at my couch and I have a copy, which I didn't know existed, a print copy of the cut uh, the, for the you know the the, the, New, York, the New York magazine yeah, yeah, site. Yeah. And the cover is the women of Euphoria. Half the people on the cover don't really have any lines this season, but it's okay. Oh, Barbie. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, like this, this just like, even just like contextualizing this as this is a group of people that are important. And this is a group of people that are going to kind of have like a, you know, a, a footprint on culture is pretty unique for TV shows. They don't do that for like justified. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't really happen yeah. very often, even for, for, for relatively popular shows. So yeah, I don't even think, as a person who basically does like the same thing every day and every week, like I don't know that I've seen people like dress more or less like Dominic Fike out there in the world, but it is uh, certainly seems like a huge, huge show. I mean, he's just riding the uh, the Pete Davidson scumbro wave right now, but I think that like that that cut that New York Magazine cover, you know, it reminds me of like uh, the Women of Twin Peaks cover for Rolling Stones. Like there are these iconic TV covers, like and then people are going to remember it. I think if media is even a thing 10 years from now, uh, 10 years from now. The other conversation uh, outside the finale that I want to talk about is this thing that popped over the weekend uh, where someone on Twitter discovered, quote unquote, that Maude Apatow uh, has, a, has an actress mother and a, and a director father. Okay. And, <laughs> and someone who skipped all the Judd Apatow movies? <laughs> this person did not know who Judd Apatow was. Okay. They said... Her dad, I guess, is a director and her mom is this actress who I don't know. They would know from like blockers or something. Mm -hmm. Leslie Mann. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, and they were like, she's a nepotism baby, which is like this conversation we had around girls and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. then a bunch of people responded like, please don't look up who Sam Levinson's father is. But I mean, <laughs> it's just, I just thought the, uh, it was this huge conversation over the weekend that I just thought was really funny. And I just, I just want to say for the record on the nepotism baby front, uh, 
Chris Ryan's my favorite Neptunian baby of the Ringer Network, but also like <laughs> that every you cannot throw a rock in Hollywood. It's just the nature of Hollywood that there's nepotism yeah. babies everywhere. And I think I also love the fact that like Euphoria leans into it. It's like the writer's daughter gets to write the big play at the end of the season. I mean, Sam Levinson. That's there's like a there must be a fraternity of that. So it's I I, I don't think the show is unaware of that exactly. And as far as nepotism babies go, uh. I thought Maud Apatow was just like a real standout this season. I thought she was incredible. Yeah, most improved player by far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Last thing I want to say before we get into specifics of the episode is I got a bunch of people uh, responding to the discussion we had last week about Nate's sexuality and some, maybe some of the terms that we used around it. And I, so I just want to say, I talked to a couple people who know way more about this than I do uh, since. Mm -hmm. And I think what's fair to say is that Euphoria, the show has not figured out Nate's sexuality, nor has Nate himself. So mm-hmm. my understanding is we could comfortably put that under a queer questioning umbrella. If people listening disagree, that's fine. But like, I think that, I think it's just safe to say it's a question, a question Yeah, that's that the show is not bothered to answer yet. So we'll see. No, Nate's working some stuff out. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I want to spend much more time with Nate and all of this, but we'll see. Um, all right. So let's start with Ash. This, this like a uh, crime show big shootout finale that uh you know you invoke justified feels like a season finale of justified uh or breaking I Bad. wish I wish justified <laughs> got this gnarly justified's usually people giving each other monologues while they stand in front of one another it's like <laughs> your daddy and my daddy go way yeah. back we don't call together <laughs> in this yeah. yeah no yeah. <laughs> but um I want to shout out I want to start by shouting out um, I was not surprised that Faye stayed loyal to Fez because that felt like where uh, this was going. But shout out to her great plan. Honestly, yes. like it, I think it would have worked. Uh, what do you What do you think, Chris? I thought Chloe Cherry actually had the line reading of this season when she's sort of arguing with Custer about like, didn't you tell me like Lori killed this guy? Yeah, and he's like, no, no, I didn't. And she just takes a beat and goes, Yes, you did. <laughs> that was my favorite favorite line reading. I, uh, I, yeah, I thought she was fantastic in that scene, um, and th- just great, great move with the dropping the glass. Yeah, slick, all around slick. I think they did a great job of creating tension around that, where you're not because Chloe Cherry spends so much of the season just sort of staring vacantly. You're not expecting her to come through with a plan that will be effective. She does. It's quickly all for naught. But like, I was really, I was really impressed with her for a second. So, I mean, the biggest thing that happens in this episode is a literal child dies. I've seen some people ask whether or not they think Ash survived that. Um, I don't. I don't think so. I believe it. We didn't see it, but it was a headshot. I believe this is Stannis Baratheon territory. <laughs> yeah, no, that was like that was a headshot. Uh, is is what we saw. My um, I've. We're recording this. It's Monday morning. Because there were no screeners, we are not uh, able to like read a bunch of interviews with the showrunners of the cast to see sort of the the larger thinking behind this episode. But um, here's my TV watching assessment. Um, Javon Walton was 11 when they started shooting Euphoria. He is now 15. Um, this is the problem the TV show Lost had with character of Walt. 
Um, and they very clumsily wrote Walt off the show uh, in a way that sort of forever lingers as a problem on that show. Uh, Euphoria does just decide to uh, kill this kid so that we're not going to have to wonder why he's so tall and everyone is still in high school. Um, he also, does he, This the actor has like a burgeoning boxing career? He he was discovered as a boxer, I guess. He yeah. was like uh, doing boxing. He's also been cast in Umbrella Academy and in like a sort of undisclosed. So he's, he's going to be working. Great. He's fine. Yeah. He's doing fine. They just like. I think that this was a, a a rare act of tastefulness on the part of Euphoria was just to not show this character mowed down. I mean, it was enough to see the I guess the toilet get obliterated. That we're like, yeah. and I guess we know what will happen when this kid get hits. Um, my question though for you is like, was Ash ever actually a character on this show? Or is he, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not that mad about it. I'm not holding Euphoria to a standard where he has to be, but like, is he really just more of, are we watching something that will impact Fez, who is a character on this show? Yeah, I definitely thought that the, it, one of the fascinating things between season one and season two is Sam Levinson working the sliders of these characters of who is like a main character versus who is a tertiary character versus who is. Yeah basically a non-existent character. And obviously people have pointed out the stuff about McKay and Kat kind of basically vanishing from the show. But Fez, who I thought was like really cool on the first season and was almost like a, uh, you know, a real nice like pressure release valve, change of pace player in the first season becomes this like not only a main character, but gets seriously integrated into Lexi's emotional life. And as Lexi becomes one of the co-stars of the show, over the course of this season, he becomes m very important and is like a major plot driver for most of the second season. Whatever happens to him next, whether it's Little House on the Prairie time or not, like I think Ash probably was a vestige of like basically capital O, capital, capital old Fez, you know, like, and wherever they want to take that character, I don't think you can have a kid with that little impulse control following him around. Um, I don't know. What did you think? Did you think he was sort of, I mean, for somebody who doesn't speak very much, I guess he was underwritten. Whatever emotion I feel about this death. I mean, it's always like, obviously chilling to watch a child die. And also not just that, but to watch a child who has been brought up in this life in a way that he feels like he needs to crawl into a bathtub with a ton of weapons or needs to stab a guy in the, in the throat or needs to do all the things that we've seen him do. Um, but I think the show is most concerned with how this impact Fez and like, you know, if this were a female character, we might talk about like fridging, but since it's not, I mean, I just, I think that the camera is on Fez as an act of restraint, but it's also like Fez and the trampled letter to Lexi and all this sort of stuff like that. Like we're supposed to be focusing on like, what does this mean for Fez going forward? And like, I don't, I don't know that I know. I think that Ingus Cloud is such a fan favorite that his cultural relevancy relevancy there you go his cultural relevancy is on the is so much on the rise that i think there's no way they're gonna sort of this is why i didn't really think they were gonna kill him that's why i don't think they're gonna stick him even in prison for that long but i do think we're gonna see again maybe it's a fool's errand on a show like euphoria to try to think of like logically how another show would handle it but i think that the emotional fallout and trauma of this and maybe for a character like Fez that do I even deserve a happy ending of any kind if I couldn't protect this kid that I've been trying to protect since I myself was a kid, you know? Something yeah. Like that, so. Yeah. I mean, he is, he's still got 
that's his mom in the bed we see briefly when the SWAT team grandma, comes yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, grandma. You know, it's it's uh, he definitely like doesn't let go of people, um, which I guess is going to mean that we'll probably continue to see him in Lexi's life when season three finally rolls around. I guess it's a, like almost part of a larger conversation I eventually wanted to have with you about whether how how risky Sam Levinson's game of like just burning up runway is. Like so many plot points on this show, kind of. I don't know really what you do next with them, you know? And that that is very exciting, but it's also like just from a sort of detached perspective, you're like, oh, interesting. I wonder what you're going to do with this show next year uh, or whenever you come back with it. Yeah. Because like you've kind of burned up so much plot with a lot of these people. I stayed clean through the rest of the school year. I wish I could say that was a decision I made. In some ways, it was just easier. I don't know if this feeling will last forever. But I am trying. We can we can talk about this now, which is just the way that the this finale ends with so many maybes. So so many will they won't they. There's the like, you know, will Fez uh be able to connect with Lexi in a meaningful way in, in a post-traumatic space. Um the whatever the promise or threat that Maddie gives to Cassie of this isn't like this isn't over. This has only just begun. Is that a promise of future beatdowns? Is that a promise of uh you've only just begun to ride the wave that is Nate's? I thought trauma? it was the latter. Yeah. yeah. Um Lori in the suitcase is a thing that a lot of people brought up of like this feels like a thread that was just dropped. <laughs> <Me. Yeah. laughs> is it gonna be picked back up? She definitely three? tried to human traffic <laughs> yeah. Rue and then was like like not in the JK. show for the rest of the season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The will they want their friendship of Elliot and Rue, the will they want their romance of Rue and Jules. Like these are all may big maybes that he's mm-hmm. put on the table for next season. But to answer your question even more specifically. The voiceover at the end of the episode, Rue says, uh, I stayed clean for the rest of the year. If we presume this is like spring-ish, it's been a couple months since New Year's. Again, I think I'm trying to apply a timeline. Maybe I, know. I love it. I shouldn't do it. But like, <laughs> <It's great>. like, <laughs> You're definitely going to be Charlie Day and smoking in front of the red red string soon. That's my constant state, Chris. Yeah. I'm always buying more red yarn. But like the... Uh, Wait a second. Is this the senior play? <laughs> Has Lexi started submitting her essays? <laughs> well, a lot of people are like, why aren't they talking about college at all? Because yeah. a bunch of these kids are supposed to be seniors. Cassie, Maddie, Nate, and I think Kat are supposed to be seniors. Probably Ethan, too. I mean, he's in Kat's class. Uh, remember when they used to go to class? Um, and then Rue and Jules and Lexi are supposed to be, and Elliot, I would say, are juniors. So if Rue is sober through the rest of the year, is this going to pick up in the summer before her senior year? Are any of those kids going to college at all? Going to college, as McKay will tell you, is where like um, a high school show goes to die. You know, there's a million cases for this. Veronica Mars, the aforementioned 90210, whatever the case may be, like Buffy to a certain extent. Like you don't want to go to Sunnydale University. You don't want to go to Euphoria Does University. Does Euphoria become about Gia? Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. The new class, right? So like, um, you know, do you have any thoughts or feelings or should we even, or is Sam just going to go yada, yada, yada? They were all sophomores this whole time. Like, yeah, I mean, I think he... I, I don't even know how much... I guess so this season starts on New Year's Eve, right? And ends at like spring play. And Rue talks about, like you said, Rue said that she remains clean for the remainder of the school year. You can get even more galaxy brain and start to ask when this voiceover is taking place. That's like, a big question I have. 
Yeah. Is it happening like years in the future or months in the future? Is this summer? Has she, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, thoughts about, we, and, and this was the other major part of the last few episodes, obviously, but, you know, sometimes things that feel true to life don't always work on TV. And I think that when Rue said those words about, I, I stay clean for the rest of the school year, my heart sank because I understand that, you know, relapses really is a part of recovery. And, um, it is pretty realistic that Rue would not just be smooth sailing out from junior year of high school throughout the rest of her life. Right. But at the same time, it is a TV show. So I was curious, I'm really curious to see like, how do you make good TV out of something when it feels like you're doing the same thing over and over again with, with your main character, Rue? And even for Zendaya, is that like an interesting acting challenge to kind of you know, portray a character who very realistically is probably relapsing, but is also like, do we go then through the entire emotional catharsis of her getting sober again? You know, it's, it's a, it's a really kind of complicated thorny thing. So many of the things that the show deals with don't have easy TV answers. I mean, it's, it's similar to some of the discussions you and I had on our respective podcasts about succession, which is like, how many times can we see the Roy kids rise and fall? Like, how many times can we watch them get smacked back down? And like, you know, my, my, I'm still pretty hungry to see that. But in the midst of the last season of succession, we were like, is this just, are we just back on the, on the merry-go-round? Not to trigger Cassie with the mention of a, of a merry-go-round, but you know, like, <laughs> is this just where we are? I don't know. Yeah, and I don't think there are any easy answers. And I think I think what the logical inconsistencies of Euphoria offer Sam Levinson as a creator is the freedom to say, like, don't worry about yeah. it, you know? Right. right. Don't worry about it. It's just a vibe, you know, and that that might be the case. But he he like if that's how he wants to do this going forward, and I don't think Euphoria is a show that should run for very long, but I feel that about all shows. But like I wonder if it has one more season. Yeah, one. Maybe two, like as yeah. many years as there are in high school. Maybe I don't know, but like, um, I would advise him to stop doing calendar markers like New Year's Eve. <laughs> That's what I would say. If you want to fudge the timeline, stop talking about the timeline. That'd be my only advice to him. Speaking of Sam Levinson and his approach to all of this, something that Nora and I have talked about, and Sam Levinson made really clear in his post episode um, interviews that went up on HBO is this idea of Sam Levinson as a, as an insert character into his own work. This this is this is something anyone who saw Malcolm and Marie could have told you like that this is, you know, this is something that Zendaya says all the time. She's like Rue is Sam, so I know Rue's not going to die and she's going to be fine cuz Sam is fine. Like that's her I don't know that that's factually true, but that's her belief about this character. If if Sam is fine, Rue is fine. But that this season we have another audience insert. You already you already mentioned this. We have another author insert in the shape of of Lexi as the as the playwright. And something that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't really fully understand until I saw Sam talk about this is like we watch Rue watch this play. We watch Rue have sort of an emotional breakthrough while watching this play. And <laughs> not to get like too spun out about this, but Sam is basically saying that. In making Euphoria as Lexi, he as Rue, watching his own life that he's putting into this show, has been able to forgive himself for things he did as a child, much the way that Rue is able to look at the Rue on stage and say, oh, I was doing a lot. 
I don't need to be that ashamed of the things that I did because I was just a kid trying to figure things out. Does this strike you as satisfying storytelling, Chris Ryan, or does this strike you as someone who should maybe try to balance making TV with intensive therapeutic sessions? I bet he does. I bet he does. (laughs) (laughs) Get you a creator who can do both. Yeah. I found, so I thought that the conversation that Lexi and Rue have in Lexi's bedroom when when Rue's like, can I come over, was um, the best and worst of this show. So it was uh, two characters having an incredibly emotionally sophisticated conversation, almost free of their character traits. You know, like, it's like there was very obviously like, a dialogue happening in one brain that was being transposed onto two characters. At that same time, I did think that what Rue said to to Lexi about almost expressing like a jealousy that Lexi had like an outlet to work through like her, her feelings about herself and her feelings about the world and Rue being like, I just don't have something like that. You know, I don't, I can't draw, I can't sing, I can't, right theater like I just don't have this like place to put all this shit and figure it out was quite moving you know and and so that's almost a perfect encapsulation of of euphoria right there it's like doesn't make any sense is kind of bullshit and is quite moving absolutely 100% (laughs) and the fact that that scene is then in the play in a way that makes no logical sense at all is actually my favorite part of the episode (laughs) Yeah, I actually really loved that. Um, that's that's why you name your your episodes after French surrealist <laughs> texts because then you can do anything you want and you'd be like, "Sorry, French surrealism. What did I tell you? Take it up with Andre. It's not my yeah. fault." Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I think that's a really good point. And I think as I continue to invoke other uh, teenage dramas, I'm going to bring up one of my favorites, which I've done before on the show, which is my so called life, which is a show that ex- that it, that explores. A girl as played Angela Chase is played by Claire Danes, who who wilds out and finds like wild new friends and then returns to like her old childhood safe best friend, Sharon Tursky, like as the season goes on. And it's about this sort of like wild rebellion and then a balance. And I think that's what we see in Rue here, which is why it feels like the show shouldn't have many more seasons, because where we leave Rue here is on such a good path of like, I see you, Jules. I love you. Maybe I loved you. Maybe I was high. I'm trying to figure that out. But like, I'm not, I can't be with you right now. Like, that's not what I can do. But I can, what this episode does with Rue, who has been increasingly a hard person to root for. And from the jump, we saw her using Lexi, I think in the pilot, using Lexi for clear urine to pass a drug test Yeah, to watch her be so supportive of Lexi, not just like loving the play, but starting to chant for her, like all this sort of stuff coming to her, telling her how good everything is. We needed this episode for Rue, I think to, to feel really excited about rooting for, her. I can, I can find empathy for hot mess express Rue, but, um, I'm so much more emotionally invested when I see that she has something to give to other characters. What do you think? Yeah, I I probably would say that my favorite Rue episodes are the ones where she's right in between those two things, mm. and that would be like the Christmas special mm. that she, which is basically so the the two hander with Ollie. Mm-hmm. Um, when she is like, I am still corrupted by this thing, but I know that there is like 
something else I want to be. I just don't know how to articulate what that thing is. You know, there's not, which isn't to say that I was somehow disappointed by her like sober making of amends throughout this episode. I just was, you know, like there is inherently a little bit more drama when the character is in flux, I think. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't really know where he goes from here with Rue because especially the way that the state that she is in where when she has access to drugs, she is essentially incapacitating herself. Like you don't, you don't really, that that's not like functional after, you know, I think that that's like where her addiction is, is that she's not like functionally able to like get around. And when she is around other people, she's basically a wrecking ball as we saw with Cassie and Maddie and everything. So I'll be very curious to see whether he is, is going to take her down that road again. And something that is is most enjoyable about Euphoria at its like most bonkers, self indulgent uh, state are those elaborate drug trip sequences. Where I'm thinking about like the fin- the season one finale, where's the whole like musical uh, number, I guess, with with Zendaya or the church sequence in this season, which I found extremely powerful, and these like rooted emotional vibe moments that don't need to make logical sense. But if he has decided, as he has in these last couple episodes, that he doesn't need the excuse, the thin veneer of an excuse of a drug trip to just, you know, take us to a surrealist place anyway, then, you know, sky's the limit, I suppose, with what he can do. I, I enjoy an, um, an author insert character. I think, I think, uh, you know, I love films like Moonlight or Lady Bird, where like a creator has really put their whole hearted self into Mm -hmm. something. With Sam Levinson, I do bump up against some issues. Um, Nora and I talked at length about the whole Malcolm and Marie thing and and how Sam Levinson treated an LA Times critic who gave him a review that he didn't enjoy and basically spit-roasted her in this film that he made. That, to me, is not a useful use of the device. And so when Lexi says something like, people need to get their feelings hurt sometimes by art, that again, to me... like. I like the sequence when they're talking about art needs to be dangerous. At least the show isn't boring. That sort of stuff is interesting, but people need to get their feelings hurt. Feels to me like Sam Levinson justifying this thing he did with Malcolm and Marie, which is something I still have an issue with. So yeah, I, I will say that he's not the first person to, to get into uh, a feud with a critic. It's pretty, it's a pretty time honored tradition. Shout out to Pauline Kale and her many admirers. Uh, but he, it get you really get turned inside out when you're trying to decide like how many of the characters on Euphoria are essentially alter egos for Sam Levinson and who is he arguing with? <laughs> you know, like and and is there a Cassie in his life that he has some stuff he needs to work out with? And yeah, but that's the thing is that I still do enjoy the mission statement of art should be provocative, art should make you uncomfortable, art should hurt your feelings, all these things. Like I don't necessarily ever feel scandalized by Euphoria. I don't know if I ever really feel scandalized, but I, I, I don't really feel like too scandalized by Euphoria, uh-huh. but I do appreciate its attempts. You know, I really do like that. I mean, to to your point about Cassie and Sydney Sweeney, I do think there are moments in this season where I would I would personally lock lock seven, Sam Levinson up in like horny jail, but uh, <laughs> um, but other yes. points of provocation I really really do enjoy about this show. You you asked this question of like how many people are actually an author insert here, and if all author inserts are arguing with each other, like who who's right? Who does Sam Levinson agree with? That brings me to Nate, which is the most 
tricky author insert. This is something that Nora and I talked about in terms of it's so fascinating for Sam Levinson and he and Sunday have talked about this for him to write this deeply autobiographical show, but cast himself as a young woman of color, which uh-huh. is just puts him in a completely different experience than he had growing up the son of a famous film director, a white cis male in Hollywood sort of thing. And so that's where I think Nate comes in as this author insert of toxic white male privilege um, as, as another sure. <laughs> facet. Uh, hopefully yeah. Sam has never been, uh, you know, a, a Nate. But my question is, and this is something that I was talking to Alan Seppenwall with and, and a bunch of other TV critics of like, what function is Nate actually serving on the show at this point, if he's not a believable character, if he's just pure toxic masculinity, why is he here? Do we want him to continue being here? What do you think, Chris Ryan? And does Nate still play football or no? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, I, I had mean, a lot of tape. I was really <laughs> like, I was really studying Nate's like form. I, uh, I know I'm asking the important question. No, I think he goes to as many football practices as these other kids go to class. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, right. Le- um, Lexi's the only one with extracurriculars. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Nate's an incredible multitasker. I was really impressed that he was able to coordinate a police raid on his father's building on his way out of a play that he didn't know he was going to be leaving prematurely, yeah. I don't think, until he saw himself depicted on stage. Well, for a while, I mean, okay, so you could l- approach this char- this whole show as like a case for extreme human empathy and that no one is beyond redemption. Right. And that no one is re- beyond forgiveness and that everything can be resolved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Nate ostensibly functions as the big bad outside of Lori on this show and is terrifying in almost every scene that he enters. Like, I legit thought he was going to kill everybody in, in that... Uh, in that building site when he walks in with the with, with a the gun re- revolver that we watched him load that we that 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 actually irritated me and and like I made a promise to our producer Steve who is listening right now that I would talk about this scene as like this is where I really bump up against my relax just let it wash over yeah, your vibe yeah. is like this Nate Cal showdown as you already mentioned some logistical questions but the, the gun just felt like a cheap fake out a gun that's never going to be used or really even drawn on someone like he kind of draws on cal but not in a meaningful way the real weapon is the thumb drive and so why tease us with the gun if not to just make us afraid that you know so you uh living here now after the moment yeah you happy i'm figuring it out sorry my read of it is that sam levinson thinks guns look cool like he I, I, I don't think he really thinks that much about like the consequences of what happened i mean like not that he's insensitive to it but like when you think about the russian roulette scene with maddie mm-hmm. uh for earlier in the season which has i think like is so fucked up but is also like probably when you're watching it you're just like wow, this is so fucked up. You know what I mean? Like you can you can get kind of carried away with the Bonnie and Clyde doomed lover. California. Like, thing. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think when he's walking in on his dad, you know, it's like I, he's the hardest character for me to locate in any, any way. Like what is, what are we watching? Are we watching someone trying to 
put their life back together? Are we watching someone give in to the idea that their father has stained them irrevocably and that they the only thing that he takes from his dad is the fact that, as he says, I get off on hurting people? Yeah. And like, if that's the case, like, what does Euphoria say about a character like that? Like, is that character still even somebody like that? Is it possible to redeem them? Is it possible for them to find uh, love or something? And uh, yeah, it's going to be very strange to see these kids in AP Bio next season if that's exa- <laughs> what they do. Like, and knowing what we know about what they do, yeah, I just think it's going to be very odd. What? What? Are, where? Where? Do you think that Nate like works on the show now as currently conceived? I mean, I think you do need a. Uh villains or agents of chaos in any teen drama though that's something that cassie volunteered for in this episode so i'd be happier to have cassie be our like villainess in the next season if if that's something that we want but nate i i agree with you and and maybe that messiness is just part and parcel with euphoria but i think with a character like cal we understand what the show is doing with cal and with eric dane in this season in terms of like giving him this like really beautiful backstory episode giving him his like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're cool. Fuck you. I'm out like exit of his family. Um, That is asking us to practice radical empathy for a character watching, watching how he was hurt um, and how that resulted in him hurting others with Nate. Maybe we're just too far in the middle of it, in the middle of an arc to see the shape of it. Mm -hmm. But as it is right now, I mean, you're right. I get I get stressed out anytime. I, there, Jacob Elordi is just like a huge human being. He just towers over everyone, and he's so powerful, and it's terrifying. And especially when he surrounds himself with these tiny women, who he's constantly mm-hmm. like physically threatening. Um, I guess I guess the negative result of this is it makes me frustrated with a with a maddie who is such a baddie and like don't mess with her she's gonna let him come into her bedroom and like threaten her like that and terrify her in that way and i'm not victim blaming here but like i want to see maddie enact like a massive revenge on nate right the things that we the people that we saw enact revenge on nate this season were uh fez at the beginning of the season who gave him the beatdown that he deserves uh-huh. and lexi who destroyed him with her art you know what i <laughs> yeah. mean like those are the two baddies really um but i'd like to see maybe i'd just like to see everyone united in a in a massive nate takedown conspiracy you know yeah the the united colors of of, of benetton <laughs> against nate yeah. that's right okay speaking of which we do need to address this like uh, bizarre party that cal is throwing for himself yeah the, the motley crew <laughs> assembled here they were drinking natty ice which makes no sense in the context of this like gay fantasia that he has created for himself i i i'm baffled by all of the choices so uh, I, I don't like <laughs> I, i've seen a couple of people be like how could he they was it natty ice or was it natty light I oh, don't it might have been Natty Light, yeah. I mean, Worse. I don't know that it makes that big of a difference uh, <laughs> for the context <laughs> of what we're talking about. My favorite character was the guy wearing a robe and briefs yeah. who was seemed disappointed that he didn't get to see the end of that conversation. Yeah. I was like, oh, all right. Yeah. And, and leaves. Uh, I also was shout out to the person cracking the beer in the middle of uh, Nate and Cal's big, big moment. Um, yeah. Uh, what did you think of that? I think probably like... And what is Cal going down for? Everything he says. I mean, so... so The thing with Jules, that's sex with a minor, right? Mm-hmm. Do we believe Nate... Again, 
I feel like I have the, the cork board with the red string out again, but like, do we believe Nate when he told Jules, this is the only copy and you have it and I don't have it? But maybe I think she asks him, is this the only copy? And he says, as far as I know, is that right? Yeah. He if says I... something like that, but like he would know if it was on like my, my, my sense is that he gave the disc to Jules and every other disc that was in this drawer is now on the thumb drive. And possible probable that Jules is not the only underage person that Cal had sex with and that that is what Cal is quote unquote going down for. But it's all again, to your point earlier, it feels like a different show. What, you know, would you agree? Yeah. I would like to think just for the, I don't know why I'm like looking for like a feel good version of euphoria. I'd like to think (laughs) that Nate kept his word to Jules and that that was not part of like Cal's wide ranging uh, sexual crimes docket. Yeah. But uh, I, I would be fine with, I think Eric Dane got his like, his moment yeah. in the sun, so to speak. And I would just be fine if Nate's dad's in jail and that's it, you know, and that we yeah. put a, put a cork in this one. Yeah. If Eric Dane's off the show, that's, that's fine uh, with me. Uh, I think something that he said, you know, we talked to Eric Dane earlier in the season and something he said about the finale confrontation Um was he was like, I just hope that Nate finds the parent that he needs. And I'm like, I don't know that I saw Cal being the parent that need needed in that scene necessarily. And certainly he's not <laughs> his, getting it from his mom. His mom's got some work yeah. to do as well. <laughs> certainly not yeah. getting it from his mom. So, <laughs> yeah. and then I really want to quickly address, you know, the, Euphoria is a show that has inspired a lot of conspiracy theories as, as does any monoculture show. Uh, and, and one was, you know, when, when Nate was flashing, to various things he flashed to like himself in Jules's position on the motel bed. And a lot of people were wondering if maybe Nate himself was sexually abused. I think my read on this scene is that that's not the case that, that he's just that what we saw were, were dreams that he had of inserting himself into these videos that he's watching with his dad. Um, you know, I'm not going to take that off the table entirely, but I think he would have mentioned it in the, in what feels like a final confrontation between yeah. a father and son here. You know? And I, I thought it spoke as much to the impressionability of people at that very young age when they see things yeah. or when they're when they are uh exposed to like whether it's behavior of their parents or visual images that they don't quite understand is like the your ability to like almost transpose yourself into the scenes. Like, you know, I, I that's that's how I read it. If it's not that, I guess we will see. I, We'll see, and we'll see how delicately they handle that. Oh, euphoria. Um. <laughs> yeah, euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that makes me a villain. <laughs> then so fucking be it. I can play the fucking villain. Yeah, do it. All right, you talked about the sliders going up and down on various characters. We're going to talk about the people who are slid down, but I think in terms of the slide up, it's Fez and Lexi, and then in a big way, Cassie. Like, this mm-hmm. is a big Sydney Sweeney Cassie season. Watching this all play out this season, I was like, whatever is happening here, which is a hypersexualization and fatal attractionization of this character, um, I'm going to wait to see where it lands before I decide how I feel about it, because this uh-huh. could go either way, really. I don't feel like the Jerry Springer beat down on stage meltdown stuff uh, really feels like it ripples back through the season in a way that I feel is extremely satisfying. How do you feel about 
what was going on with Cassie this season. So I, I, you know, from the last moment of the previous episode with Cassie fogging up the <laughs> doorway window, yeah, um, I knew that it was going to be a carry moment. You know, Cassie to carry, very, very easy Love to it. switch those yeah. letters. Yeah, yeah. Her carry moment rather than blood is drama, I guess, <laughs> both like literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of gets to the issue I have with the play being the crux of this season. Mm. I thought it was like a really cool um, mechanism for 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 one episode. I think putting it over two episodes just exposes you to a lot of like, are we sure Lexi's good at writing plays? Like, you're just sort of like, because <laughs> all of my backstage, people are just like, you're a fucking genius, Lexi. And it's like, I guess. I mean, she's really got a great production designer. But like, <laughs> uh, yeah. th- when, when basically we're asked to believe that all of these people go to Lexi's play and don't know what Lexi's play is about and then sit through what seems like a three-hour play about themselves and then don't move when Cassie interrupts the play and starts screaming and threatening to kill Lexi and then gets in a fight with Maddie that goes off stage that everybody is just like, we're just going to stay seated. They're like, well, we we're have to stay- see how the play ends. We, <laughs> we have don't to see f- how this play follow ends. Follow this fight into the hallway. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but like Cassie's rage at Lexi. This is the show in, in, in like such a nutshell. I thought that was completely kind of like unexamined. And then I thought Cassie's moment in the bathroom with her frizzed up hair with Maddie perfectly icing her ankle with a Coke Mm -hmm. and Maddie being like, it's just begun was like a perfect moment and was so, was so interesting and was so well done. So it's, it's always, it's always best of times, worst of times with this show. I do think um, of all, you know, we've seen so many scream cry reactions from Sydney Sweeney this season. Yeah. But I do think the moment that the uh, the Cassie double comes out on the merry-go-round horse, <laughs> she just shrieks. And you're like, yeah, I mean, Lexi, you're an asshole for that. Um, yeah. My God. Yeah. The, uh, the, the sequence, it's what makes the Rue Elliott uh, sequence. And let's talk about this for a second. All the more confusing because we press pause on this drama to cut away to Rue making amends with Elliot and then an, a lengthy musical sequence. Like, I don't hate this song. I think it's a sweet little song. And I get that like Dominic Fike is a singer. Not little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it just kept going in a way that like doesn't. And, and it was just like one verse four times. And I, and I, and then, and then he had the audacity to end with like, I'm working on it. I'm like, then end it sooner. My guy. Real like, flashbacks to like, <laughs> college dorms somebody's got a guitar and you're like oh you're gonna play all of bob dylan's desolation row huh <laughs> all nine verses like he really said anyway here's wonderwall like that really yeah. happened on the show so like the fact that all of that happens in a pocket where i was so confused i was almost like did did levinson do this out of order because the kids were all still sitting there and i'm like why would you still be sitting here after the whole play is like dissolved into shambles why is everyone just like placidly sitting here and giving rue time to like reminisce about this anyway logic is not something i should try to cling to but that, that See, was we're, <laughs> it's like it's like a daily affirmation you just have to keep saying it <laughs> to worry, yourself throughout worry. this podcast don't, don't ask for logic don't, don't ask, ask for logic. logic did it work on an emotional level sometimes um <laughs> what always works is every single choice that Alana Yubach has made the entire season, a Seuss Howard 
incredible, incredible. Great job. You know, I think not since Peter Gallagher. Great makeup, great hair, <laughs> great everything. <laughs> not since Peter G- Gallagher and his bagels on the OC have we seen a parent on a teen show make this kind of impact on me. Uh, great stuff. Yeah, Cassie, I don't know. I, I don't know that I, at the end of the day, I feel like this is quite exactly whatever it was that Sam Levinson was going for. Did it give Sydney Sweeney a lot of opportunities to cry and scream? It did. And that in of itself is TV. That we watched. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so let's talk about uh, the slide, the, the sliders that slid down. Because like yeah. we've been talking about Kat and McKay. McKay, most meaningfully. Kat related to maybe some of Barbie's behind the scenes conflicts with Sam and her questions around her character. Uh, the Daily Beast. We talk about rumors. The Daily Beast has a reported piece about this yeah. where they talk to folks who uh, confirmed this story. So that that. You know, Kat's character is cut out of a lot of the season because of Barbie's like creative differences, shall we say, in in uh, classic Hollywood speak with Sam Levinson. And I thought Kat's arc this season was the thing that makes me most nervous about Euphoria going for, forward. Tell because you can be so invested in and interested in what's going on with someone and not necessarily need something to happen. Like, it's basically the danger of making people happy on this show. Right. right? So... She meets a person who loves her for who she is and seems almost like uh, angelic in his acceptance of everything about her. Yeah. And then, in I guess realistically, is like, you know, not I don't know how to love myself, so I can't let somebody else love me kind of stuff. Like, I understand why we kind of arrive where we do at the diner where she sets it up and basically gets this guy to break up with her and then get mad at him, although there's really no resolution to that that scene whatsoever or for for Kat as a character. But I worry about a couple of these characters being put in positions where they've seemingly, I guess, Rue's addiction being the number one thing, but in a variety of ways, like given false happy endings just to have them torn down for mm. the sake of drama, screaming and crying. Yeah. Characters can't be happy. That that's that sprouts from like Joss Whedon. Uh, you know what I mean? Like as soon as a character's happy, somebody's going to die or something like that on his shows. But like, you know, a, a happy character is a boring character, according to some people. I don't think that's the case. I would say, I would argue Ben and Leslie in Parks and Recreation is mm-hmm. a good argument against that whole thing. Like, you can just have people to get together. Yeah, like Taylor. Oh, <laughs> Super Taylor's fine. Yep. Coach. Anyway, so, like, it's it's fine. I think what, it, what hits me the wrong way in all of this is, like, that relationship blows up, but, like, the character of Ethan still gets, like, a huge great moment in the sun at the, at the close of of sure. this of this season and cat is relegated to whatever she's relegated to and 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 that's that's frustrating when behind the scenes drama really Cat's like, almost dragged down up. to like barb levels like <laughs> i almost think that like that bb had like more lines maybe in yeah. this episode than cat did if we're if we're not counting on stage cat i think so the the stealth you know person who got put on the back burner though i think is jules this back half of the season the last four episodes She's barely in it. Uh, she, you know, Hunter Schaefer got some good reaction, to sh- like shots off in the audience. Zendaya, Zendaya, and Alana Yuba, queen of the reactions, but 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 Hunter Schaefer did did a pretty good job. And then you know, there's that lovely, you know, parting of the ways for now with with Rue and Jules. But like, Jules felt like she had a whole story outside of Rue last season, and that doesn't really feel like the case this season. And and I don't mind an ebb and flow. I think that's an interesting way. You know, I I don't mind that we got bumped up time with Fez and time with Lexi, et cetera. I think I think that was done really well. 
But I don't think we needed Jules to disappear quite as much as she did. What do you think? So there's a lot of stuff in that Daily Beast article that I thought was interesting purely from like a show running perspective of like, obviously this is one of the rare things where the first three title cards after an episode ends are all the same person. Mm -hmm. So it's always written by, directed by, created by, executive produced by Sam Levinson. And the suggestion in the Daily Beast story that Sam, let's just say like, doesn't always come to set with an agenda. You know, he doesn't have a shot list and to have something that looks this way without a shot list just suggests a lot of like a, a an amazing director of photography b an amazing director i mean sam is obviously like just absolutely visually gifted um but i do wonder how much of this show is kind of like assembled in the edit or maybe m- not made up as it goes along but like kind of like on the fly and if that happens even someone like hunter who i think has like creative equity in this show to some extent I mean, she wrote her own her special episode it's just like kind of, I, I wonder if this is how these things happen. It's just like Hunter doesn't really have a lot to do in the second half of this season. She, There's this amazing scene where, uh, you know, Jules and Elliot basically confront, they, they take part in Rue's intervention. But other than that, and that really breathtaking scene with, with uh, Nate in the truck, there's not really not much to the, to the whole character arc. So I, I, I hope that they, they find something for Hunter to do next time. Listening to various actors give interviews, because that, that Daily Beast article is really illuminating, but listening to the various actors give interviews about the party sequence that opened the season. And how they like shot for weeks and stuff. Forever. And I've heard yeah. various actors say, well, I shot this and it didn't make it in. There was this mm-hmm. whole scene that, you know, so basically the, the, he, he shot hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work worth of party stuff and then edited it down to whatever it was he felt he needed to tell the story that he needed. This is similar <clears throat> this is a very lofty comparison, but it's similar to the way that Terrence Malick works where he just shoots like so much footage and then he's like, I'm going to carve it out on the edit. Whatever. The, I don't know what the story is, but Richard Gere looks great in this field of grass and I'll figure it out later. You know what but I mean? But it's such a fascinating thing with like the, I mean, I was just reading a Danny McBride interview in Vulture where he was talking about the writing process for Gemstones mm-hmm. and how something sometimes they'll come out of like breaking a season and he'll take something that's supposed to take place over eight episodes and crush it into one. And he'll be like, I want this whole thing to happen in one episode. And I almost feel like that's what Sam did a lot. Maybe a little bit to their detriment on this on this show because the Elliot, Jules, uh, Rue triangle yeah. was intoxicating. You know, not to put too fine a point on it. I thought yeah. it was like a really, really interesting relationship. And Sam kind of burned through it. Like, I don't really know how you reset that those dominoes up next season or you want to go back to that. But this idea that, you know, everything is fluid and like Elliot's bad for Rue, but good for Jules, but Jules is bad for Rue. And it's like this kind of amazing like movement of, 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 of impulsive control and everything else with that relationship. And they, they it, it kind of blew it. I mean, it's over now, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, they can reconstruct it. I hope they don't reconstruct it just to have the same result. But sometimes I wonder whether or not the um, almost like hyper energized nature of storytelling on this show is like bad for the show's longevity. But and what's also true and this is odd, but like Sean and I were just having this conversation on the big pick about the Oscars. Like when you talk about the the current approach that the Academy has the Oscars where they're going to shunt a bunch of uh, technical awards in a pre-show uh, fashion. What that means then is that every single thing that they include in the broadcast itself 
you're watching and you're judging, was this worth making it so that Hans Zimmer has to, you know, accept his first Oscar, not live on television? Was this bit, was this montage, was this whatever? So the question is, were all the montages of Sydney Sweeney <laughs> <laughs> orgasming or whatever right. worth cutting whatever we might have for Kat or Hunter Schaefer or whatever? You know, like every other decision then becomes weighted in the balance of it all. And and that's that's when an approach like that becomes tricky. Because I think it I think there is something really interesting about taking a block of marble and carving out the human underneath, like if that's how he wants to make television. But you know, it means that when we look at it and judge it. We have um we have a metric to judge it by. We have a metric to judge these decisions by. Um, all right, we're almost out of time. Let's just do like a quick sort of season overview wrap up. You mentioned some. I think you bring up some really smart concerns about like burning through storyline. What is it, or or loops in a storyline? How long does this work? This was a very controversial and divisive season. Nora, I think, is probably still unconvinced whether or not she likes this show at all. Um. And so, how are you feeling at the end of it all? The end of I love two. this show. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing like this on television. I, I really do. You know, I mean, like, I was talking to you a little bit on, on Slack the other day yeah. uh, about this, but I was, I've been really, like, struggling to find the comparison that works. I mean, some people have been like, it's like Boogie Nights or that it's like the Safties or it's like this, but it's so cinematic. And I was trying to, but I was like, what movie does this kind of remind me of or what filmmakers work? And it's not actually the usual, uh, comparisons or maybe even one that Sam Levinson would make himself but th this season really reminded me of this Tony Scott movie called Domino which is about Kieran Knightley as a bounty hunter yeah. as an heiress who becomes a bounty hunter and uh every shot in Domino is framed and lit to basically you could start a Tumblr about it like every shot you could start a blog about and the movie makes no sense and is so tonally mismatched throughout it's it's like this story and is but is one of the most beautiful and exciting and weird things you can watch and the fact that that kind of filmmaking is being made about high schoolers doing drugs and riding bikes and it's on every sunday and it's the biggest show on tv or one of the biggest shows on tv outside of montana that's pretty that's pretty amazing and so i just i found myself honestly honestly looking forward to sunday nights i didn't really even watch ahead because i enjoyed the ritual of like getting pizza and then watching Euphoria with my wife and just be like, wow, Sam, <laughs> you did it. You're wild for this one, Sam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think again, taking your counsel and your lead and just being like, oh, stop trying to make sense of it and yeah. just sort of like ride with it. And we do that for so many shows. I think we're going to have to, we're going to be trying to make sense of severance for 10 weeks, you know, <laughs> like let's just let Euphoria wash over us. Um, And, and like, again, to, I like having a thing like this that has such a wide ranging cultural impact that we're not going to be able to see until we're far removed from it. Musically, visually, the way that like young men and women are doing their makeup or the way that is impacting the way that people think about like sexuality and gender fluidity and like all that sort of stuff or the, or the, or the radical empathy that it asks us to exercise for some of these monsters or people naming their kids ashtray who knows <laughs> oh my god they can join the daenerys's and just uh <laughs> ride their young lives ashtray out. might age better than daenerys <laughs> I think so. I think so. um all right well that's euphoria a, a show that is a hot mess that chris and i really enjoyed watching i i loved it i really i did <laughs> so did you do you feel like actually at the end of this 
like, do you feel like I have to go have a buyer myself meeting and figure out like what my priorities are? Or were you like, I, I, I unabashedly liked it again, the last few weeks ever since I took your advice, I was just like, I was like, I, you know, our producer, Steve, who's listening right now. And, uh, our, I, I already mentioned that, um, Jomi, who does our social, like texts me every Sunday. We were on a tech. They were like trying really hard to convince me that this is a bad show. And I was like, I can't, I can't hang with that opinion. Sorry, guys. Dog. Like I, everything you're saying is correct. Yeah. And yet I had a great time. So that that's where I am at the end of the day. It's all that matters. Chris Ryan, where can folks uh, hear more of your thoughts and opinions? I'm on the Watch podcast twice a week talking about TV and pop culture with Andy Greenwald and I'm frequently on the Rewatchables and I'm on the Answer podcast on Fridays on the Ring of NBA show. And Chris and I both will be back on The Big Pick later this week to talk about The Batman. The Batman. uh, (laughs) Which I'm really excited. A movie that I loved. And I'll be back here on the Prestige feed talking about any number of shows. Yeah, I think think I'm talking about Super Pumped soon. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. All right. Thanks to senior producer Steve Allman for his work on this show. We will see you all. Bye. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.